Happy Saturday. It's March 26th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, it's Oscar weekend. What are you wearing this morning? <laughs> Michael, you know perfectly well what I'm wearing because you're seeing me on video. I'm wearing a V-neck cardigan and actually our Airmail pajama shorts, okay? I'm getting ready to go to a lunch and I didn't want to sully my dress, okay? That's not true, everyone at home. She is... <laughs> No, she's in a gown and she's in heels. She looks fantastic. <laughs> the only thing you wouldn't know, she has a blanket over her head in order to help the acoustics. But other than that, you look fantastic. And your jewels are by who? Winston? Is that Harry Winston you're wearing? Leighton, darling. No, actually, I'm in head to toe Belle Perone today. Sorry. Well, of course. You look fantastic. Let's get a close thank up you, here. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Let Love me sh- it. Somebody called the shoe cam. Somebody called the shoe cam. And you, my friend, let me guess. Tom Ford, tuxedo? No, Tom Brown, of course. Wait, you don't actually watch the E! show, do you? Like the pre-show? Oh, yeah. Really? Because Brooke lives for it. She gets down on the floor, front and center. Like It's like she's six years old watching cartoons. Her face is like a foot from the screen, and she's like got the remote pausing it. And and then if I'm in the... Mike, come here. You got to see this. Calls me back in. So for her, it's the Super Bowl. It's all about the pregame. She wants that three hours with that. This is one of the many reasons that I'm convinced that Brooke and I are the true soulmates. She gets me. She just gets me because that's my exact same thing except... I'm sure I eat a lot more pizza and drink a lot more wine than she does, but I love it. When Joan Rivers was alive, those were the days. No, when she's sitting there, she's got E on, then she's scrolling through Twitter for the comments, then she's even looking at TikTok. So it's like, I'm living with a Gen Zer. I'm like, I call her, my nickname, my mafia nickname for her is Three Screens Brooke, because it just is on that night. She can't get enough stimulus of, of who's wearing what and what the reaction is, so. I'm actually not kidding. If you guys are kind enough to invite me over, I will come because I bring something new to the mix, which is I get all the press releases from the fashion houses so I can tell her what everyone's wearing before they even say it on television. Before? Shut up. Shut up. This is like the only press release you actually want to receive. It's like you getting the president's State of the Union address before the State of the Union so you can like be ready to go and know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, pretty much. It's like when being a fashion insider is truly valuable. There you go. Hmm. All right. Stand by. Standing by. All right. Well, it's an exciting night. We're going to talk about our Oscar picks later in the episode. But first, let's get to some of the hard news in the world. We are once again dealing with the war in Ukraine in the issue of airmail this week. And we have some really excellent stories that give us some great insights. For example, you know that we love discussion of oligarchs here at Airmail HQ. And you worked on this story in the issue. So why don't you tell us all about it? This is great reporting by Clara Malo, a recent graduate of Yale University, as well as a new associate editor here at Airmail. And this week, she She documents and reveals some very sort of complex, messy ties that Yale University has, its school of management has with oligarch money. And this is kind of the next chapter. We all talk about seizing oligarchs' yachts and their villas and all these things. But the next wave of this sort of looking at where the money goes is this soft influence that the oligarchs have used with their money over the last couple decades and how many institutions, Yale among them and their school of management, has been all too eager to take money from the oligarchs. So Clara looks at the influence that money has had and the complications and it's causing on campus with faculty. Okay, so uh, Michael, we have our associate editor of Airmail here, Clara Malo. Thanks for having me. Clara, you know, we've read 
a lot lately. The sort of first wave of going after the oligarchs and their money was sanctioning the these men. But you've got a very, I would say, disturbing and news-breaking story in the issue this week about Yale and its connection to the oligarchs. And but more than that, it's it's the the school's hunger for money and to build its endowment. According to your reporting, let it and especially its school of management, to cut deals with shady Kremlin-tied institute, correct? Yeah, that's right. So there basically are two parts to the story. One is the more expected billionaire parents who want to get their kids into the best possible school. And we see that a lot of these Russian oligarchs have had kids go to Yale. We see their names around the school, although those names are fast vanishing but the other part, and I think the more worrying part, especially at the School of Management, was a direct connection to a school called Skolkova in Russia. It's called the Moscow School of Management Skolkova, and it is essentially sponsored by sanctioned Russian companies as well as the Russian government in particular. You know, in my reporting, I learned that there's been a lot of pushback against having this deal with the with Skolkova at SOM, which is the school management at Yale, but the deal has continued up until March 8th when the war with Ukraine was well on its way. Going after donors is one thing, but it seems that the school really knowingly opened the school to the influence of the Kremlin. So how did this happen? Yeah, I think that the story really dates back to the early 2000s when the U.S. had a moment of easing tensions with Russia liberalizing in Russia. And um, there was kind of this open communication. And that was a moment where a bunch of these Russian oligarchs kids did start to come. Irina Vexelberg was the first. She went to the School of Management at Yale starting in 2002. But I think it started from a place of maybe just communication and, and networks and nothing that ominous. And then it feels like Yale wasn't able to catch up to changing politics. Essentially, there were two parts to it. One was that there was an academic partnership between the Russian school and Yale. That did include a donation or at least money given to Yale and to the teachers who would then go to Russia. And then there was so much pushback from the faculty, including former State Department members coming forward and saying that they didn't think that this was an appropriate partnership. It was a scary partnership, that they ended the partnership in 2018, but then it was kind of immediately restated in a different form and Yale joined with this school in a new capacity. How did you come to report the story and and, and dig into this? At first, it started with the idea of tracking whose kids went to Yale. It was kind of something people knew about, that their kids had been there. And a quick look at Yale Daily News and um, some Yale department letters show that these men did have a footprint on the university. But then it got a little bit weirder because, you know, for instance, I saw Peter Ovin's name and then Peter Ovin's name was gone. And I ended up having to use, you know, like the internet archive sources called the Wayback Machine where you can see what websites looked like on certain dates. And then you realize that, wow, there are names quickly disappearing. And I think that was one part of the story in trying to track who had been at the school, who had been a donor, where did their names go? And the second part was was more focused on the School of Management. And so then I started to look at the School of Management and 
from the outside, you know, there had been this letter about the ending of a partnership a few days before I had started my reporting. And when I started to poke around and talk to teachers, I quickly realized that there was a lot of tension and a lot of concern within the faculty about the connections to Skolkova. The more I was kind of able to get at the center of the school, you know, near the deans, uh, talk to people who had been in those rooms when some of these decisions were made and start to look at not only what had happened, but how badly the school did not want the secret to get out, which made the whole thing a lot, a lot more concerning. Where do you think the school goes from here? And what do you think the reaction on campus will be? The thing that was maybe at least one of the most surprising aspects of this reporting was just how badly the school didn't want this story to come out. And there were a lot of people who kind of outright lied to me about these connections. And I hope that this is a moment of reckoning and of at least setting the record straight and coming forward and and admitting to certain connections because Yale did take money. Well, it's a riveting, you know, uh, eye-opening and uh, I'd say disturbing story because it is, as I said, that kind of next layer of what happens with as we go after sanctioned money and the people behind it uh, and show that it's, you know, a lot of it's already been woven into the fabric of institutions, American and and otherwise. So it's a tremendous piece of reporting, Clara. Thank you. Thank you. We've got a very good story this week, what you might call in the newspaper business almost an explainer, which explains how things work. And you've heard a lot, obviously, about seizing the assets of the oligarchs and the money and the houses and the villas in Italy. But one place where they're really zeroing in with is London, or as it's sort of known through many circles as Londongrad because of its immense concentration of Russian oligarchs. Now, people often wonder, why do so many oligarchs own homes in London? Well, as Scott Galloway explains this week, London is the undisputed capital of not money laundering, but what's known as money washing. And this is because London became the washing haven on purpose and has been doing this longer than anyone since at least 1799 when King George III introduced what was known as the non-domicile tax system and it's still in force today and it says that anyone living in the UK whose real home is abroad doesn't have to pay taxes so this makes it attractive to people with a lot of money to park it there in very expensive homes and today 87,000 homes in the UK are owned by foreign shell companies, which at least 1.5 billion pounds of which are owned by Russians linked to the Kremlin. So I encourage you to take a look at Scott Galloway's story in the issue. It will blow your mind. It blew my mind, but also look at our own fair city of New York, Michael, because we have so many of these apartments in these new mega towers that we're seeing in Manhattan, especially midtown Manhattan. The lights are all dark at night. There's rumors about who owns these places and in some devices we actually know, but it's totally fascinating because once you start chasing the money, you don't necessarily know where you're going to end up. On this tiny little London adjacent story, there's a great Dispatch and George Kalajrakis' diary column this week about uh, maybe this is who they should send to investigate or to sort of like look at what's inside these homes. George reports that two brothers, aged 12 and 13, have recently been charged with perpetrating a 10 month long burglary spree, which they began last April, and during which they hit 
several of the most prestigious hotels, Claridge's, the Four Seasons, the Corinthia, and they were sort of like junior cat burglars. So to me, it almost makes, I hope Disney is maybe optioned this already. They probably watched enough episodes of Lupin and it all made perfect sense. Did you hear what's happening on Lupin? Tell me. So... Lupin, where like life imitates art, seven in France, seven equally larcenous young people, ranging in age from 13 to 21, have struck the set of Lupin and made off with equipment worth about $300,000. So just goes to show you. Right. It's like, who knew that the security cost was going to be such a huge line item for these production companies? Because in recent months, we not only have had that theft, but we also had a huge theft on the set of Downton Abbey as well. I think they stole a lot of valuable silver and plates and antiques and all kinds of fancy things. I blame Mr. Bates. It's, it's just like Clue. Ah, uh, Mr. Bates. He's my suspect. So it's not Mr. Mustard or whatever his name is. It's Bates. That's who I'm zeroing in on. While we're on the topic of Downton Abbey, you edited my story this week about this fabulous place in the cops. I wanted to talk about this because this is where I want to go. Your story came in and I was like, so this is like dreamboat story. Tell us about it. So this is a crazy story. So we publish a feature in airmail called View with a Room and we're always looking for really fabulous hotels, private homes, just extraordinary places to stay. And I found out about this incredible place in the Costwalds, which is Manor Style Estate. It's got 10 bedrooms. It's got fabulous design. It feels like someone's real home versus like a cheese ball rental house, which is what you often get, even at these crazy high price points that these places command. What makes this house so extraordinary is not just its good looks or its amenities, the 600 acres, the swimming pool, the sauna, all the rest, but it's the fact that it is fully staffed. And when I say fully, I mean, it's got a full-time housekeeper. It's got a full-time cook who will make you anything you want. It's got a driver. It also even has like a concierge who will help plan educational activities for your kid. So while you're out hitting the bar that's hidden in the woods somewhere, your kids can be learning all about the native plants of the region. And these employees come courtesy of the Mandarin Oriental Hotel Group, which is is launching its own exclusive homes division this summer. And they have nine houses all over Europe. There are some in Ibiza, south of France, other places in Spain, and they are exquisite. But this staff at each of these houses has been fully trained by the Mandarin Oriental. So you're basically getting hotel service in a private home. It's kind of incredible. The house that we write about is called Sirenchester House, and that's in the Costwalds, but there are lots of great homes all over Europe. It's basically taking the hotel experience and putting it into a private home. It's really cool. Count me in. Maybe we could get there really fast and have our Oscar night watch there. Oh, sign me up. We'll find 18 of our closest friends and make it a real party. Well, you know what's very close to the Cotswolds? London? Devonshire? Devonshire, Paris, which you've got Alex Lebrano, who just is our man in Paris. He made me once again just want to get on a plane and go over there because he's got a story about what sounds like you and I, we both know what fans, all of us are here at Airmail, of finding the perfect bookstore. And it sounds as though Alex has found the new perfect bookstore in Paris, right? Yeah, it's a charming story. It's called The Red Wheelbarrow, and it's in the 6th arrondissement of Paris on Rue de Médicis, for those of you who know and love the city. And it used to be this tiny little jewel box of an Anglophone bookstore selling all kinds of fabulous things. And now they have recently expanded their footprint and taken over another shop next door to make it even bigger because it turns out there really is that much demand for the printed page. And I've never been to this bookstore. Have you ever been, Michael? No. The owner is a woman named Penelope Fletcher, who's had quite a charmed story and seems like a delightful, lovely person. And, you know, look her up when you are next in town. Tell her airmail sent you. She'll give you some great things to read. But you'll have to pay for them. 
Yeah, that's true. But a small price to pay, Michael, to keep the printed word alive. Exactly. Exactly. You go home with some great books. It's always that feeling, I bought this book in Paris. It makes you feel good. Okay, speaking of books, we have a marvelous excerpt from an unpublished work by Pierre Latin, the storied French illustrator who died fairly recently. And not only do we have some of his charming illustrations, but we also have some story from him about the beautiful art of collecting. And he talks about all the magnificent things he's collected over the years. And I couldn't help but wonder, Michael, do you collect anything? I should try to guess and see if I can guess correctly what you collect. Ready? Okay, money clips. No. Writing utensils. No. Rare books. No. Ashtrays. No. I'll just tell you, I collect anxiety and, (laughs) and lint in that order. That's what I seem to collect. Really? You don't have a passion for ephemera? You know what? A New York apartment, I've learned, is just not a place for ephemera. It's just clutter. One man's ephemera is another man's clutter. You have to be very selective, I've discovered, or decided. And you? I mean, I collect vintage paste jewelry from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Not terribly exciting, but just stuff I've gotten at antique malls, vintage stores, those kinds of places over the years. And that's about it, really. That's enough. That's see, but that's small. You can fit that in little boxes and drawers. Yeah, true. And I love tiny little drawings. Like whenever I'm traveling, I try to pick up a tiny little drawing and then I have it framed and then I have on, you know, a little portrait wall of tiny little drawings from all over the place. Hold me closer, tiny drawing. <laughs> Put me up there on the mantle. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. But the way that Latan writes about the art of collecting, it made me think I should be collecting more. There's all this desire to throw things away these days, right? See, but that's what happens. That's just like going to the Brimfield flea market or something and you go and you see all this stuff and you're like, oh my God, I want all this. And you buy, you load it in your car and then you get home and you're like, look again in your apartment, like, what is all this junk? Like, Yeah, no, I know. I know. I mean, it's like, I'm so susceptible to influence. Marie Kondo told me to throw everything away. I threw everything away. And now Pierre Latin is telling you to collect things. I'm collecting things. Like, well, I can't be helped. All these highfalutin mentions of books and the collecting of beautiful objets. Let's get down to the nuts and bolts of less art and more commerce. And would you like to turn your attention to the uh, Academy Awards? Always. All right, Michael, an extra special treat for our listeners here today. We have the one, the only, the Dana Brown back on to talk about Dilettante, his incredible memoir of his years working at Vanity Fair and beyond. And he is here to talk to us all about the one question. Well, the one party, Michael, that it's safe to say you and I have not attended together, which is the Vanity Fair Oscar extravaganza. So welcome, Dana Brown. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back. We're thrilled to have you. Thanks for being here because this is the big Oscar weekend. And in years past, you would have been lighting it up on the red carpet out there. By my calculation, you went to 22 parties. I think that sounds about right. I did. I missed one. My daughter was born on March 17th, 2005. So I didn't go to that one. We canceled it in 2008 because of the writer's strike. But I think those are the only two that I wasn't out there. So you're probably right. It was a yearly. I used to refer to it as Christmas in Hollywood, like that whole week. It was a whole week. You know, first of all, Part of my job was like, first as grades assistant for a couple of years, which was, wasn't was that much work, to be honest. But then it was like, your job was to literally go out to LA for a week, stay in a really amazing hotel, go to parties, go to dinners, go to... That was my job once a week, every year. 
and then ending with the Oscar party. It was like the best thing in the world. Now that I look back, it's like, that was work. And I miss it. I miss the Oscar party. It was a really fun time. Dana, what was it like? Do you remember the first year that you went? Like, was it as hot then as it was by the end of your tenure at Vanity Fair? No, my first one was the second one. It was 1995. It was at Morton's. It wasn't huge. I think it was it was just a few hundred people. And no, it wasn't. It was slowly becoming sort of the hot party and would grow from there. But one year we realized we were sort of stuck with this space. Morton's wasn't a huge restaurant. We decided to blow a hole in the back wall and erect a gigantic tent behind it so that we could squeeze in about 500 more or something like that. And I forget what year that was. Maybe it was like 98 or 99. But that's when things really started taking off, when you could sort of squeeze a few more in. And then we would patch up that hole in the wall in the back as if it never happened the day before and Morton's would just get back to business. It was, I think I referred to it in the book as Brigadoon. It was our Brigadoon that would just appear and then disappear. I don't even want to talk about your story so much that you have an airmail this week. I want our listeners to go and read it themselves. I want to know the craziest lengths someone went to to try to A, either crash the party or score an actual invite to it. The scoring an actual invite, you would hear from everybody in the week leading up to the Oscars. Like you would get calls from someone like, hey, I hear you're in LA, what are you doing? You wanna hang out? And it was really just about scoring a ticket. Two of the best, one year, and that might've been 94 or 95, I forget. It was the year of the movie Babe with the pig. And somebody showed up at the Oscar party with a small pig claiming that it was the pig Babe from the movie. I think it worked, I can't remember, but I think we were like, well, I must be, the pig for babe. So I guess we'll let him in. But one of my favorites was we kept a very tight lid on press coming into the party. We just controlled it. We didn't want press in the party. Occasionally we would let a one writer or two writers in from maybe the New York Times, the Washington Post, and they would be sort of walked around on a metaphoric leash. But we always had journalists trying to sneak in. And I remember one year they were doing a sweep of the bathrooms to meet you before the party began. And they found a woman fully dressed, fully made up in a sort of party gown and her evening wear. And she was heels and she was crouching on the toilet in one of the stalls in the women's room. And she was a reporter. We didn't know how long she had been in there. We don't know when she got her makeup ready and how she got in there, but she might've been in there for days. We had, we had no idea and they kicked her out. But I'll tell you what, it was a hard party to crash. I mean, there were so many checkpoints. There were so many little passes. There was like a pass that had like a code, like three different codes on it, like a number in the top corner, a letter in the bottom corner. And it was all super specific to the name on that thing. And you could arrive at this time and not a second earlier. It was a super hard party to get crash. But surely people did, right? And even sometimes I think there was always some buzz that like someone might have crashed. She was actually an invited guest. Like, tell us about Graydon's approach to the guest list, right? It wasn't your average sort of, let's just get the most fabulous people in possible, right? It was a little bit contrarian. So what was that like? Yeah, I mean, there was, the whole thing was like time. And there was a specific kind of person that would come at a specific time. The dinner didn't really have that many movie stars at it because most of the movie stars were at the Oscars. And so it, it was sort of the, the power room, you know, it was the studio chiefs, the heads of the, of the agencies, the, the well-known producers, the sort of grand doms of Hollywood sort of social class. And then there was always a weird idea of Graydon's that I don't know where they came from, but every year he'd be like, he'd be like, what if we have Buzz Aldrin? Let's invite Buzz Aldrin this year. And so suddenly Buzz Aldrin would be there. I think Monica Lewinsky 
was invited one year in the late 90s. And that was the sort of, there was always like one sort of like interesting out of left field guest that would come. And then once the party was opened up after the Oscars were over, it really was like, you know, it would change year to year depending on your heat. You know what I mean? Like the nine o'clock invites were the people coming from the Oscars who didn't win Oscars and other movie stars. But like year to year, you just never knew if you were going to get that nine o'clock invite again. And some years they would get a 10 o'clock invite. And their publicist would call and be like, well, they were invited at nine last year. And I think we stopped short of saying like, well, We've got to make better choices then in the movies they do because they had some flops. And so it was really sort of like your heat in the industry dictated what time you were invited to the party. And it was so funny watching how important this party became because it really did. I mean, if you were in the industry and you were invited or weren't invited, it sort of announced to the world where you were professionally and you're standing in Hollywood at that moment. And people were, were, were desperate to be in that party, especially on the business side, you know, the sort of producers and agents that it became like the yearly, it was your professional standing. It was how you were doing. And it was amazing how powerful it became in that town. For those of you born before magazines, when they still ruled the earth, I think it's a great bit of context where you talk about going out there that first year, 94, 95, when that first Hollywood issue landed and it's you didn't really own the town yet, as you say. But soon that issue, it was 300 pages. There was billboards on Sunset Boulevard. And it became almost this, that issue became the sort of yearbook slash house organ for Hollywood every season where people truly, like, if they didn't make it into one of those portfolios, that was devastating enough. And then if they didn't make it into the party, that was another level of devastation. But like, the true power of print was then brought to life with that party. The first Hollywood issue was 95. So that was the second Oscar party. That's a big reason of why the party grew also. I mean, suddenly, Vanity Fair, and you'll remember this, Mike, I mean, it really became to Hollywood what Vogue was to the fashion industry. And you had these two things. You had an event, I mean, two events. The Hollywood issue was an event in and of itself. You just had these two things that just were so powerful in the industry. And like I was saying about the party, it was the same with the Hollywood issue. There were nine or 10 movie stars on every cover with that big three panel gatefold. And that launched careers, careers that are still around today. And what it meant for the magazine, having the party and the issue was like Vogue September issue. Vogue September issue is famously so full of ads that it probably makes enough profit for the magazine for the whole year, or at least it did. And that's what the Hollywood issue did for us. I mean, it was one issue that, I mean, 400, 500 pages, half of which were ads, charging 100 grand per page or whatever. I'm, I'm no mathematician, but that turns into a shitload of money, I think. And I can't, like, there's nothing like that now. And that was a single issue of a print magazine and a single night in West Hollywood. Okay, Dana, enough business, all right? Whenever I looked at the photos of... All those actresses on the red carpet at the Vanity Fair Oscar party, I had one question. Did you guys have a medic on site? Because between the two tight dresses, the alcohol and the excitement, like were people fainting? Were people passing out? Give us some horror stories. That's really interesting. I don't totally know the answer. It wouldn't surprise me if that's something they prepared for and had the sort of ambulance on standby in the back. There was a few years ago, I think maybe it was one of my last ones in 
2016 or 2017, I think someone did have like a heart attack or a stroke at his table and had to be sort of ushered out of there. And I, I wish I had more details, but I, it's like my memories of this are hazy. But I'm like, wait a second. I'm sure there was. In Graydon's era, Vanity Fair always drew the A-list of stars, whatever A-list meant at that particular point in time. Who are some of the people who always seem to suck the oxygen out of the room? There were a lot of people who were constants at the dinner. The dinner ended up becoming very, very familiar, whether it was the Barry Diller and Dion von Furstenberg. I, Oprah was there almost every year. There was almost like too, the star wattage was almost too high for any one person to get too much attention. Like, even if they tried, it just sort of wouldn't have worked. But I remember, why do I keep remembering Oprah at the party? And I remember the year that Halle Berry won the Oscar and Oprah, I could visualize this, she stood up on the banquette and had tears streaming down her face when Halle Berry won. I think it was 2002 or 2003. And I'm not saying Oprah sucked the oxygen out of the place, but it was like suddenly became this focal point of the whole room. And just what it meant and to have a black woman win the Oscar and what it meant to Oprah Winfrey and a lot of, a lot of people. That's a wonderful, dramatic moment. But was there ever a moment, though, inside the party where you look back now and you think, well, that was certainly weird. I mean, an encounter with someone or all of a sudden you find yourself face to face or engage with them like, you know what? It's funny you say that, Mike. And I probably like if I sat down, I could probably come up with hundreds. I remember before Mel Gibson ran into all his trouble. Remember the whole sugar tits incident and the whole anti-Semitic stuff. And I remember I was in the bathroom and Mel barges into the bathroom. And this is maybe a little too much information, but we were peeing next to each other and he was sort of kind of semi-incoherent. And I was like, Jesus, that Mel Gibson's a total And I don't know if it made it in the excerpt with Chevy Chase, where for many years I was what we call a fill-in. I would sort of stand at the bar, and if someone didn't show up, they would make me sit at the table because they didn't want empty seats. And I did that for a number of years. And I remember one year I was seated next to Chevy Chase. Oh, stop it. Are you serious? Yes. And it was kind of a crappy table and it was sort of off in the corner. And I don't think he was that happy. And and we were sitting there talking and I had just had, this must've been the mid two thousands. I had just had my first child and he started telling me a story. He's like, you know what I used to like to do? And I was like, no, tell me, Chevy. He said, I used to like to squirt breast milk out of my wife's nipples because you could make it across the room. And I was like, what? And he, I think he was not thrilled about the table. He was not thrilled that he was sitting next to a nobody. And he just sort of got up And I thought he went to the restroom and it turned out he just walked out of the party. He'd been there for about 20 minutes, which I always blame myself for. I love it. So Dana, after you left Vanity Fair, what did Oscar weekend mean to you? Nothing. Like literally, it's so funny, which is fine. I feel like I did it for so many years. It was sort of like nice not to have to do it anymore. And I'm perfectly fine sitting on my couch. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out, Dana. In the meantime, Michael, do you have anything else for him? Come on, Mike. Come on, Mike. Come on. (laughs) Well, I'm like everyone. I just want the dirt. I know we have to sort of modulate that here, but I would encourage everyone to read Dilettante, the book, which just came out this week. I'm going to throw this out. Subscribe to Airmail and you get to read the excerpt. I'm such a huge fan of Airmail and I think everyone should subscribe. And you get to hear Dana read it as well. Oh, I forgot about that. That's right. There is an audio book. You can order my audio book and it's me reading for nine hours, which... It was a lot of reading. Good for that next cross-country trip. Oh, God. Perfect.
Well, Dana, Michael and I are not going to hold it against you that you never invited us to the Vanity Fair party, but we did get the invite to your book party, so we will see you next week. Dilettante by Dana Brown, pick it up or else fear being a Hollywood outsider forever. And it'll make me sad if you don't. So thank you so much, guys. All right, Thanks, Dana. Dana. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye. All right, let's do some Oscar picks. All right. Okay, here we go. Well, best director, Jane Campion. Just kidding. Sorry, Jane. I think you blew yourself up there. All right, best picture, Michael. I'm just going to run us through. These are the noms. Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, Power of the Dog, West Side Story. I'm going with Coda. You're probably right, but My Secret Hope, Power of the Dog. Yeah, I just think it's a feel-good year. Okay, fine. Feel-good year. Fine. Fair enough. It's either going to be Coda or Belfast. They'll probably split the vote, and who knows where it goes from there. Okay, thank you. Let's go to director. Let's go to director, baby. We've got Kenneth Branagh for Belfast, Ryusuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car, Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza, Jane Campion for Power of the Dog, or Steven Spielberg for West Side Story. Vote. I actually think Campion wins it here. What? You might be the only person who thinks that. How do you think she gets over her Williams gaffe? Who do you think is going to win it? I don't know, Michael. I don't know. I mean, I think there will be a Spielberg push. Brannock for Belfast. People liked that. People like him. He's very well liked in Hollywood. I don't know. Okay, two more. We've got actor in a leading role. It's all about the batch, the Cumberbatch. Oh, he was good in Power of the Dog. I was like, is this seriously Benedict Cumberbatch, like in this bizarre Western? And it was. That's his moment, I believe. He should win it for the rangy walk alone. Did you see that walk that he did? It was unbelievable. He got like the bow-legged thing down perfectly. Says the Kansas girl. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's see. Actress, actress, actress. Hmm. Coleman? I agree. I think Coleman. I think there was a lot of love for the movie. People loved the movie. This is a nice way to give it a nod. And you can't go wrong with Olivia Coleman. Okay. Huh. So, okay. So, All right. so, so two more will do supporting actor and supporting actress. I think it goes to Plemons for Power of the Dog. People love him. Woo! I agree. I think he was fabulous. Jesse, we love you. And we love Kirsten Dunst too. And this is, fun fact, this is the first year that two members of a, or a partnership or whatever it's called, are nominated for an Oscar. So that brings us to the next category, which is actress in a supporting role. We have- I think Alice for King Richard. That's so funny. I was going to say the same thing. She was incredible. Okay, great. Well, lots to discuss. We'll regroup on this next week. All right, Michael. I think our recommendation for this week is that you should watch the Oscars and let us know what you think. We cannot wait to hear how this all unfolds. I think we want to thank everyone for joining us. Exactly. And if you haven't watched any of the candidates for nominations, take this chance to do it. Code is a fantastic film. I actually I just watched West Side Story and I have to say I put aside my I was I was amazed at how good Spielberg had done with that one so we had just used the last weekend to sort of catch up on a couple of these okay got it on that note Mike please read us out on that note I'd love to thank the Academy I'd love to thank my co-star Ashley Baker my producers Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. 
A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.